0: Well, good morning, and welcome to the Snowshoe GNCC. My name's Chuck Leemaster with Team Faith. It's a privilege to be here with you this morning, and I always love doing chapel here at Snowshoe because we get to do it out in the courtyard, and and, uh, people are able to come out on their balconies and listen, maybe even if they don't want to, but I mean, why would you not want to, right? It's a beautiful Sunday morning with the fog rolling in here at Snowshoe, and um, maybe if I talk really fast, we can stay dry. I don't know, but I'll try. Lord, thanks a lot for this morning. Thanks for a beautiful place to have a race kind of at the top of the world here, and we just, uh, throughout the weekend, we've been able to look around and see your beautiful creation, and uh, without a doubt, we can acknowledge that there is indeed a creator, and uh, we're just thankful to be a part of your creation. Would you be near us this morning? Give me the words to say, and open our ears, open our hearts to understand, and may your truth be proclaimed boldly, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, with me, like you, I get to drive all over this beautiful country. And um, I get bored and I kill a lot of bugs with the windshield. And uh, so to pass time, I like to listen to books on audio, you know, the audacity.com or whatever. And, and another thing I do is I listen to a lot of podcasts because most preachers, um, they read books that are written by very smart men and that's how they learn. And I hate reading. And so I'll listen to these smarter men. On podcast, As they preach messages, I'll listen to them, and I get some ideas and inspiration. And Andy Stanley is one of my favorite guys to listen to. He's the pastor of a church down in uh, Atlanta, Georgia. And he, I guess maybe he and I have a similar background. Maybe that's why I identify with him. He grew up as a preacher's kid, except his dad was a very famous preacher named Charles Stanley. Back when my dad was a preacher, and my dad used to listen to Charles Stanley on the radio all the time. And I would just fall asleep listening to it because it was boring. And um, I grew up in this church culture where church just kind of became boring to me, and it wasn't really relevant for my life. And I don't know exactly what Andy's background was, but here in today's modern age, he likes to speak, and he takes a very critical approach to the Bible and to Christianity. Not critical as in that's a bad thing, but critical as in why do I believe what I believe? And so he, he spoke some messages earlier this year, and I thought, man, that is so good. I wish that Andy Stanley could come to Snowshoe and preach that message, and he can't, so you're stuck with me, <laughs> and we'll do our best to get through this, because he brought out some really good points. He, he admitted that uh, he, one of his favorite pastimes is to listen and to, uh, to, to podcasts and to read books and to read blogs by people who have abandoned the Christian faith, and I love to do that. I don't know why. It's just, I'll get up in the morning and I'll be, you know, instead of reading my Bible, I'll be reading Facebook. And I know I should be more spiritual than that, but I'm reading my, my phone and I'll see one of my atheist friends post a blog that says, hey, you ought to check this out. And so I go to it and every time I, uh, I, I read these notes by people who once were a Christian and they've abandoned the faith, and now they're an atheist. And, and once they believed in creation, and they believed in six days of creation, that God spoke the world into existence, and now they believe in ooze and slime and evolution. And I want to know, what is it? Why do they think that? Why, do, why have they changed their belief system from, from God to know God? What is it? And I just get sucked in, and I'll read for hours, it seems, these blogs and even books about people who have abandoned the Christian faith. And there is a common theme with people who have left the Christian faith. There's a common, there are two main reasons that they leave the Christian faith. Number one, it's because of Christians. I get that. Some of us are kind of crazy. I'm kind of crazy to some people. But there are some Christians out there that make me not want to be a Christian. (laughs) I recently moved down to uh, Sale Creek, Tennessee, which is just, it's about 20 miles outside of Chattanooga. It's at the base of the mountains. It's beautiful. I'm out in the country. I just love it there. Uh, just, we've got dirt bike trails near us. We've got uh, kids for my kid to play with, and we love it. But out in the country, you're kind of limited on what church you can go to. Of course, most of the time, this is my church right here. But on those off weekends, and when we're not doing a dirt bike camp or not doing another series or something like that, I like to have a church home. So I moved. I need to find a church home. That's a tough experience, trying to find a church home. It's been a while since I tried to do that, because up in Nashville, we had so many good churches out here in the country. Man, there's some crazy Christians. I went to some churches. I was like, oh my goodness. I can't bring my friends to this church, because they'll never want to be a Christian, because Christians are crazy. But you know what? We all have bad experiences, whether it's with church, or with Walmart, I mean, you've had, everybody's had a bad Walmart experience. You don't stop going to Walmart, right? You just go to a different Walmart. Or better yet, you go to Target. You don't stop shopping. I wish I could, but everybody needs duct tape. You've got to buy that stuff somewhere. And so I go find a different place to shop. I've had a bad haircut in my life more than once. You know what I do? Go find a different barber. Knowing crazy Christians is not a good reason to abandon the faith. And I hear it all the time, and I understand it, and I get it. That people are crazy. But it's not a good enough reason to abandon the faith when you really understand what it is that you believe and why you believe it. But another big reason that people give for abandoning the Christian faith is this right here. The Bible. Maybe they grew up believing in that six days of creation, they went to Sunday school all their life, kind of like I did, and they have all these flannel graph stories about uh, the six days of creation, or, or Noah and the flood, and all the cute little animals coming in, and then you get to be an adult, and you understand, God judged the whole world, he killed everybody. I mean, now you've got this picture of little children drowning and bouncing their heads off of rocks, I can't reconcile with a God who would do that. Or I can't reconcile with a God who would, who would uh, sanction genocide in the Old Testament. Or I can't reconcile some of these dates in the New Testament where the, the New Testament says it's this and secular history says it's this. I can't make all that stuff match up. And since I can't make all that stuff match up and I can't make myself understand what this God in the Old Testament's all about, forget it. I'm done with it. That's a terrible reason to abandon the Christian faith. You know why? Because the Christian faith Is it based on the Bible? Oh, no, evangelicals, and a fancy word for people who grew up in the church, evangelicals will just drop their jaw. What do you mean the faith isn't based on the Bible? Our faith is not based on a written document. Our faith is based on an event, an event that happened in 33 AD when a dead man was buried, placed in a tomb, had a stone rolled over it, and then three days later it was empty. That event is called the resurrection. Our faith, the Christian faith, has the, has the name Christ right in it. Christian, Christianity, followers of Christ. It's based on an event that happened that Jesus rose from the dead. That's what we stake our claim on, is that, that the resurrection actually happened. It's not that the Bible says so, and I grew up with that all my life. The Bible says, the Bible says. Well, the Bible says some things that I personally can't even reconcile. I can't even understand some of the things. It, it, Christianity's not even about the beliefs or the teachings of Jesus. Jesus said some things on this earth and all of his followers were following along, his disciples are following along, and they're like, Jesus, that's a great story. What did it mean? And Jesus would tell them what it meant. And even to this day, there are theologians and pastors and people smarter than me, and we don't understand exactly what Jesus was talking about in some of those parables. But it's okay, because Christian faith isn't about those parables. It's not necessarily about the teachings of Jesus. It's about that Jesus rose from the grave and because of our belief in that empty tomb that changes everything in today's modern age it seems that christianity is so very fragile it seems that we have a lot of people and with with the advent of of the internet and facebook and blogs and all these these books and these people that i've talked about earlier about abandoning their faith it seems that christianity is very very fragile it seems that if we can pick apart one part of the Bible, we pull on one thread, you can unravel the whole thing. And the problem with that is that uh, Christianity was never that fragile. When you look at the history of Christianity, you see that in the very first century, that when Christians were first called Christians in Antioch, as the book of Acts points out, that, that, uh, that this whole movement of Christianity, it was not fragile at all. People were losing their homes, their jobs, their families, even their lives, Because they were followers of Jesus Christ. Christianity was very, very hardy. And for the first three centuries of of the the movement, of the, the Christian movement, the first three centuries of that, it grew and it grew under extreme persecution. Like if you say you're a Christian, you're a follower of Jesus Christ, it'll cost you everything. Almost a guarantee that it'll cost you everything. In AD 250, there was a guy named Tertullian. He was a Christian apologist, which simply means that he was somebody kind of like what I'm doing right here. This is why I believe what I believe. And Tertullian had an interesting story. He was a a Roman centurion's son. So he grew up knowing Rome, being a Roman citizen, and he converted to Christianity when he was 40 years old. And he did so because he examined all the evidence of an empty tomb. And in A.D. 250, he, he made a statement. He wrote down a statement, kind of tongue-in-cheek, and it sums up exactly what was happening with Christians back in that day. He said, if the Tiger River rises too high or the Nile too low, the remedy is always feeding Christians to the lions. <laughs> because in Rome, we've seen, we've seen the movie The Gladiator, right? I love that movie. We've seen the Colosseum, the Roman Colosseum. We've heard all the stories about feeding Christians to lions. We've heard about the persecution. We've heard about uh, Titus, Emperor Titus setting Christians on fire, sticking them into the ground, setting them on fire to light the, the, the courtyard at night. We've heard all those stories about the extreme persecution of Christians. And, uh, and this sums it up. To what Tertullian said is that the answer is always, kill the Christians. In his day, in the first three centuries, the world was ruled by Rome. Rome was called the Eternal City. As far as everybody knew, Rome was going to be eternal. There was no power on earth that was anything like Rome, like the Roman Empire. And Rome ruled the entire known world. For what people knew back at that day, they Rome ruled the entire world. And so Rome was always going to be. And Rome, the Romans, they had many different gods. They had lots of little g gods. And, and the gods were always persecuting the, you know, always, always toying with humanity and humanity was always trying to manipulate the gods to get what they wanted and anytime things weren't going right like there was a famine or there was a flood it must be the gods are toying with us and the reason the gods are toying with us is because we let these christians say that the gods aren't real we let these christians say there's only one god so if we kill the christians the gods will be happy with us and so tetrillion comes along and says yeah the remedy is always feed the christians to the lions sounds good to them but the point is is that despite that severe persecution Christianity continued to grow. You see nobody at that time in those first 3 centuries nobody gave up on Christianity because of something that they had read or because they couldn't make the text line up. You know why? There was nothing to read. There was no Bible. There was an old there was this document called the Old Testament. You know what the Old Testament was? 2000 years ago, it was a document that pertained only to the Jews. The Old Testament was a document that, hit, that chronicled the Jewish history or the, the rise of the nation uh, of Israel. And it chronicled their beliefs and their belief system. The New Testament hadn't even been written yet. 2,000 years ago, there was no Bible to stake your beliefs on. Everybody in the first three centuries believed that there was an empty tomb in 33 A.D. in a little place called Jerusalem. Karen Armstrong is, a, uh, is an author... And she wrote a book recently called Fields of Blood and a History of Violence. And in which she was comparing the history of religion and how religion and bloodshed always goes hand in hand. And so she's looking at the rise of different religions. And she's looking at all the wars that goes through that. And, uh, and she made a statement in her book that I want to read to you. She said, yet against all odds by the third century, Christianity became a force to be reckoned with. Against all odds. The odds were Christianity shouldn't go anywhere. Christians were being put to death left and right just because they believed that there was an empty tomb. Against all odds, Christianity rose. She goes on, she says, we still do not really understand how the rise came about. You see, this is an interesting statement because because historians the world over don't understand how Christianity rose to the point that one-third of the entire world today believes in an empty tomb. How did that happen? It doesn't make any sense. Because with history... There's always a cause and an effect. It's just like going to the doctor. I was talking with uh, Tracy Pickens yesterday, the four-wheeler racer, women's nine-time champion, and she said that uh, she was feeling sick last week. So she went to the doctor. The doctor said, you have strep throat. There's a remedy for that. It's called penicillin on Thursday. She took penicillin on Saturday. She went out and took fourth place in the women's class. That's what we like. Cause and effect, now I know what to do with it. History is the same way united states of america birthed in 1776 almost 250 years ago we know the story there was some colonists that came over from england there was king george over there the colonists set up over here now you got these two different cultures going back and forth then there's this taxation without representation and the boston tea party and then some leaders came on the scene guys like thomas jefferson benjamin franklin george washington there's this war declaration of independence the united states has been born 200 and some years later here we are we get it we can follow that if you've ever studied the rise of of, uh, of the religion of Islam or the Muslim religion, it's the same thing. There's a cause and effect. In 600 AD, there were many factions of Arab tribes. They all believed in many different gods. Then this guy named Muhammad comes on the scene, and he unified all those tribes and said, there's only one God. He introduced monotheism to them, and he he rallied the people behind him, and he raised up an army, and he wrote down his creed, and he wrote down his doctrines, and he wrote down the path for them to follow, kind of like our founding fathers did with what we call the Constitution. Muhammad writes out the, the Quran, and this is what you follow. We understand that. There's the cause and there's the effect and here's what's happening and there's something that somebody can follow. And there's a, there's a path to success basically. Christianity, there's none of that. And historians can't figure out they can't wrap their minds around how did Christianity grow? Because here's the problem. If there was no resurrection, there is nothing to understand. If there was no resurrection, then you can read all this historical documents. But if if there was no resurrection, then how in the world did Christianity rise to the place that it is today? You see, it was that event that changed everything. If you discard that event, then you don't have anything. And if you discard the writings about that event, then you're not going to understand anything either. Now, despite what I've been saying about the Bible is not the foundation of our faith, and I stand by that, it's the empty tomb that's the foundation of our faith. The Bible documents that. The Bible wasn't called the Bible, though, for several hundred years. Matter of fact, what happened was an event happened. There was this guy, Jesus, on the scene. He dies, he's buried, he's resurrected. There's an event that happens, and then it's documented, it's written down. There's some guys that wrote down this event, passed out the letter, the letter got copied got passed around some more, and in the 4th century, somewhere around uh, 397 A.D., they understood that, all right, all these these letters, all this documentation, let's bind it all together. Let's call this the New Testament. Let's put it together with the Old Testament, and now we've got what we know today as the Bible. But it was the event that shaped everything. And so when we understand that, here's here's the stage. The 1st century, as I've already said, Uh, Israel's under Roman domination, Roman rule. The Romans rule the world. They give Israel a little bit of their own autonomy. They say, you can have your own religion. Matter of fact, Herod at the time built the greatest temple that the world had ever seen for the Jews. I'm a good governor. Look at me. I built you this beautiful temple. You can have your own religion. The thing is, don't raise an army. Don't rebel against Rome. Pay us your taxes, and we'll all be happy. Well, for years and years, Israel had been looking to get out from underneath Roman domination. And when they read what we know as the Old Testament, they saw all these prophecies about God saying, I will send you a Messiah. I'm going to send you somebody that will rescue you and bring peace to the whole world. And so the Israelites were looking forward to this coming Messiah over, over time, several people appeared on the scene and said, I am the Messiah. Let's rise up against Rome. I will set you free. And every time, 100% of the time, they got squashed and they got killed and people got crucified and people died and there was no rebellion and Rome every time said you do that again we're coming at you and so all the time we've got these temple leaders we've got these religious leaders who've been given power by Rome they're the highest power in the land of Israel the next step is to go to Rome you don't want to do that So these guys have some power, and all the people are looking forward to that Messiah. When can we get out from underneath these taxes? When can we get out from underneath this oppression? We're looking for the Messiah, and a guy comes on the scene. Wild guy. We talked about crazy Christians at the beginning of this. One of those guys. Comes out with long hair. He's wearing camel skin, as clothing, and he's baptizing people in the Jordan River. Nobody's ever heard of baptism before. John the Baptizer comes on the scene, and he's preaching a gospel of repentance And so the religious leaders go to him and say, hey, John, are you the Messiah? He says, nope, I am not the Messiah. I am here to prepare the way for the Messiah. He's coming. He's close at hand. You need to repent and get right with God and be ready for this Messiah. And then Jesus comes on the scene. And Jesus, when he comes on the scene, he starts doing some things that have never been done before on the face of the earth. He starts healing people. He starts the blind are seeing, the lame are walking, leprous are being healed. He starts teaching people, and he teaches with authority that people have never heard. He has an understanding of the kingdom of God that nobody's ever heard before, and crowds start following him. And when you read through the account that Mark writes down, you hear crowds, crowds, crowds. People are gathering to, to, to Jesus, and the temple leaders become concerned. Oh, no. We've got another insurrection rising up, and it's led by this guy, Jesus. The funny thing is, every time the people said, Jesus, you're gonna lead us up against an insurrection against Rome. Jesus is like, No, I'm not here to do that. I'm here for something that you don't even understand. It's called the kingdom of God. But the people are rallying around Jesus, and then there's a rumor that Jesus raised somebody from the dead. And we all know that dead people don't come back to life. (laughs) But you've heard the story of Lazarus. Jesus, he's summoned. Hey, you gotta come and help my brother. Jesus is late to the funeral. By the time he gets there, Lazarus is dead and buried. And in one of the most famous passages in the King James Bible, Jesus is talking to Lazarus' sister, and he says, Open up the tomb. And in this verse, she says, Lord, but he stinketh. He's been dead four days. By now, he stinks. And Jesus says, Open the tomb anyway. Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus comes out bound in grave clothes. Lazarus comes forth. And the fame of Jesus spreads like wildfire. Jesus comes into Jerusalem, and everybody's chanting for Jesus, like, yeah, go Jesus. Here we go, rising up against Rome. And the temple leader, the high priest at the time, he says, you know what? This is going to be bad news for us. If we rise up against Rome, number one, they're going to squash us. Number two, they're going to take away all of our authority. It's better that one man die for all the people. He had no idea how true he was. Better that we kill this one guy than to have an insurrection against Rome. From that point on, the eyewitness accounts tell us that they were looking for an opportunity to kill Jesus. And of course we know how that shook down, or how that turned out. Jesus indeed was crucified. The interesting thing is, is that modern history agrees that there are some eyewitness accounts that you can find right here nobody no credible theol or no credible historian rather will dispute that there were eyewitness accounts of the life and times of jesus we have uh, what we call the gospel, or the account, the story according to Matthew, who was an eyewitness, Mark, who hung out with eyewitnesses, Luke, who was a doctor, who said, I have thoroughly investigated all of these events, and here's what I found according to my research. We've got John, who was an eyewitness. We've got the account of Peter, who was an eyewitness. We have the account of James, who was an eyewitness, James, the brother of Jesus, who didn't even believe that Jesus was the Son of God. I mean, what would it take? Andy Stanley poses the question to his congregation what would it take for you to believe that your brother was the son of God (laughs) Magic tricks wouldn't do it A dead man coming to life is about the only thing that could do it and that's exactly what happened with James So we've got all these different eyewitnesses. They write down their accounts. We've got them all bound up right here But if you throw out the resurrection Then you don't have anything to go on Here's the interesting the most interesting thing about these eyewitness accounts Modern history wants to tell us that these are made-up stories. That, yeah, there was a guy named Jesus. He was a good teacher, which if you wanted to follow Jesus' teachings, none of us would be here right now because we don't understand half of what he said. Jesus' teachings, interestingly, were all about himself. He said, I am the way. I'm the life. I'm the resurrection and the life. He talks about himself. I'm the way to God. I am the vine. talks about himself all the time. If Jesus was somebody who just died and stayed dead, none of that would make any difference because all of Jesus' teachings were all about himself. And when he died, his teachings died with him. When he died, his closest followers died with him. Their hopes of anything died with him. You see, when Jesus was crucified, all of his closest followers fled the scene. According to their own account, they fled the scene. Mark tells a story about one of the guys that uh, was at the arrest of Jesus was wearing nothing but a linen tunic, basically wearing a sheet. And and the the Roman guards or the the temple guards went out, they reached for the guy and they grabbed hold of his sheet and the guy fled, he fled naked. That's a true story according to an eyewitness that was there to see it. Now here's the deal, if this was all made up, there's all kinds of things that wouldn't make any sense because this is not how you would write the story. If I decided that, oh man, my leader just got killed, I know what I'll do. I'll pretend that he rose from the dead. I'll steal the body. Now I'm going to write this story about how Jesus rose from the dead. I'm the hero. I didn't flee naked. I didn't flee Jesus at all. I was right there with him to the very end. If you make up a story, you make it believable. You give yourself some credibility. But in all four of the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we don't see any of that with Jesus' closest followers. We see that they were cowards. We see that they ran from Jesus. The only people that had any kind of belief in Jesus at all were Jesus' enemies, the Pharisees. The Pharisees, you know, when Jesus, when Jesus died, a guy named Joseph of Arimathea goes to Pilate. Joseph was a wealthy man. He was a secret Jesus follower. He couldn't let it be known because he he was wealthy, he had a lot of influence. But at Jesus' crucifixion, Joseph is the one that goes to Pilate. He says, Pilate, understand that with these criminals, you usually let them hang on the cross until they rot. And then you just kind of scrape their remains into a bucket and you throw them in the dump. Because it's Passover, you're probably going to take the bodies down, throw them in the dump right now. We appreciate that. But what would it take for me to get the body of Jesus so I could bury it? I'm ad-libbing a little bit here. But Joseph of Arimathea goes to Pilate. Pilate gives him permission to take down the body. We believe there was probably some money that changed hands. There was one guy that was with him, Nicodemus, a Pharisee, an enemy of Jesus. These two guys take and bury Jesus. They put him in the tomb. They embalm him. They do the ritual burial. They bury him. The Pharisees, the religious leaders, then go to Pilate, and they say, Pilate, we've got a problem here. Because when Jesus was alive, he said that he would rise from the dead on the third day. You've given opportunity for that to happen. You've given opportunity for his followers to come and rob the grave and say that he's been raised. Put some guards at his tomb so they can't do that. And Pilate says, okay, which is a really confusing thing for the Roman centurions because there was absolutely no resistance at Jesus' arrest. What makes you think that if they weren't willing to die for him when he was alive, what makes you think they're going to put their life on the line when he's dead? Because if we catch them stealing a body, there's going to be 11 more crucifixions. I guarantee it. The Pharisees actually believed something about what Jesus said. But you know what happened on the third day? Nobody expected nobody. Women came to the tomb. They're going to re-embalm the body of Jesus because two men did it. And if men did it, they obviously did it wrong. So women are going to go and they're going to re-embalm the body of Jesus. They get there and nobody expects nobody. They find an empty tomb. They go back, they tell the disciples, he is risen. They're like, no, he isn't. Dead people don't come back to life. Jesus' own followers didn't believe that Jesus was coming back to life. And the amazing thing is, the next thing you read about Jesus' closest followers is that they're out in the streets of Jerusalem and they are preaching boldly. And they're saying, do to us what you will. But you killed him and God raised him. We've seen him. Now say you're Sorry. That's the how the gospel or that's how Acts actually starts out. You killed him, God raised him. We saw him with our own eyes. Now repent. Because this event right here changes everything. Paul, who was a Pharisee, an enemy of Jesus, comes on the scene. And when Paul comes on the scene, he hates Jesus. He hates anybody who follows Jesus. He's having them tortured. He's having them in prison. He even stands as a witness when somebody is killed. Stephen gets stoned to death. And Paul's on his way to Damascus to kill some more Christians. And he has an encounter with the risen Jesus. And Paul's life changes. And of course, we know it now that he wrote some eyewitness accounts. He wrote some letters to churches that became half of what we now know as the New Testament. Here's what he wrote in one of in his first letter to the church at Corinth. And you can read about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is how we reference it. But he says, I would remind you, brothers, because I've already told you this once, I would remind you. Of the gospel I preach to you, which you already received in which you stand and by which you are being saved. I've already told you all about this. You've already believed it, you've already staked your claim on it, you've staked your lives on it. I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, because I heard this from other people myself that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. Those scriptures that we know is the Old Testament. All those prophecies about a coming Messiah. Isaiah 53 talking about he was wounded for our, our transgressions. He was bruised and he was, uh, he was slain for us. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas, another name for Peter. Then to the twelve, that he appeared to these people, eyewitnesses. Then he appeared to more than 500 people at one time. Most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep in other words, Paul is saying to the church in Corinth, if you need collaboration of what I'm telling you, just go across the pond, and there are 500 people there that saw Jesus, a risen Jesus, with their very own eyes, eyewitness accounts. You can go find them for yourself. And then he appeared to James, his brother. Then to all the apostles, last of all, as to one untimely board, he also appeared to me. I am an eyewitness of a risen Jesus. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am and his grace towards me was not in vain. If you've abandoned the Christian faith or if you've ever considered leaving the Christian faith because of crazy Christians or because of something in the Bible that you can't reconcile, God's grace that he extended to Paul is extended to you as well. There is no good reason. Just because of crazy Christians. Just because you can't understand something that was written down. This is the document of an event that actually happened. The event was not in 397 AD when this was all put together. The event was in 33 AD when there was an empty tomb. And that empty tomb changes everything because there is hope for humanity. There is hope for you in your life. There is hope for an eternal life. There is also hope in this life today. Because with Jesus... I love the way that it's phrased, that Jesus will make your life better and make you do better at doing life. It doesn't mean that you'd be a rich millionaire, but it means that I have joy in my heart. Through all the adversity that life throws my way, I have joy in my heart. I have an assurance that there's something more. And it's not because I've wrapped my mind around six days of creation versus the flood versus evolution. It has nothing to do with why I believe with what I believe. It was an empty tomb. God, thank you for today. Thank you for the documentation of the most important event in all of human history. I pray that those that haven't accepted your, your son as their savior, I pray that today will be a new day for them. I pray that you go with us, draw us close to yourself, keep our racers safe today. We love you, we look forward to meeting again at Unadilla. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you guys, have a great race today.